Welcome to the Golf Exposed Podcast. It is non-stop trash stuff. I'm supposed to be pros here. I would be barefooted, drunk, playing golf. Golf Exposed Podcast. But it wasn't talked about like it is now. We got our kicked. Where we give you the good, the bad, and the truth about golf business, betting, and stories. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Golf Exposed Podcast. My name is Jordan Michael Colson, joined by Brown Golf Management CEO and President, and also the CEO and President of Golfback, John Brown. And John, we are ushering in a man of vast credentials today. He is the Associate Professor and Director of PGA Golf Management and the Head Women's and Head Men's Golf Coach at the University of Maryland Eastern Shore his name is William Dillon, and he joins us today on the Golf Exposed podcast. Now, before we usher him in, John, how do you have a relationship with this man? How do you know him? Well, Billy is the uh, the program director for the University of Maryland Eastern Shore, so he touches a lot of students' lives. I reached out just over a year ago at this point, Billy, maybe a little bit longer than a year ago, and we started to talk about what a relationship might look like between his university and our company, how we could give back through some education, some real-life business uh, applications that are happening at my level, and then how we can expose his students to potentially internships and other opportunities uh, within our company and just frankly within the industry. I think we had great conversations then. I think diversity is one of the things that's an issue in the industry, and Billy knows more about that than probably just about anybody. It was just a, a partnership that formed, and it's been growing since, and I'm really excited to have Billy on today. Billy, welcome to the program. How are you today? Good. Well, thank you, guys. Appreciate that. Appreciate you having me. Uh, do I detect a little bit of a southern twang there, Billy? L- yeah, a little bit. <laughs> I'm from the uh, great state of South Carolina. Now you're up north here with us. So what's the biggest difference between down south and up north? Do we drive a lot worse? Yeah, I'd say a little bit. <laughs> uh, obviously, weather. I mean, you know, that, that's, that's the main thing. That's why people go south, right? There is a saying down there that nobody retires north. And, you're, and you guys have better barbecue for sure. You got that right. <laughs> you want the North Carolina style or the South Carolina style? So is that is so? What is what's the difference between North Carolina and South Carolina style barbecue? Well, Eastern North Carolina tends to be, uh, I believe, a, a little more um, of the vinegar based. The other side is the ketchup based. South Carolina is about the mustard. In Pennsylvania, we have cheese whiz on our cheesesteaks. <laughs> 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 All right. Well, you're already blowing us out of the water here. First and foremost, thank you for being on the show. Can you elaborate? What is a PGM school? I want to make sure that I do that. I do it justice. What all does that entail? Okay. Well, as the industry was growing back in the, I'd say in the seventies, I guess seventies and eighties, as the, the PGA of America noticed it growing, they decided to lend their academic curriculum, which all PGA members go through, and it has, it has evolved over time, obviously, like everything does. They decided to lend it to some universities around the country, and Ferris State in Michigan was the very first school to have this program, which means uh, students, say, coming out of high school or military guys that are, that are retiring from the military or, or whoever wants to get in the golf industry as a PGA member, they can come to one of the 18 programs that are in existence today go through the academic curriculum from the PGA, complete whatever classes that their majors tied to. Here at UMES, we're tied to hospitality. So our students are very well versed in food and beverage management and customer service, uh, table service. They get, they get pretty deep in the food and beverage side of it. And at the end of it, at the end of your four and a half year career, after you have passed your playing ability test, which is a PGA requirement for membership, 
and it's a requirement for graduation from one of these programs as well. You're 16 months of internship. You get your degree, then you are eligible for membership in the PGA of America once you obtain a position within the industry. So it's a direct elect is what they call it. It's a very fun program. When I'm recruiting students, I say, look, it's about 75% academic, 25% athletic. And I don't know of anything else out there that's like this. And Billy, there's approximately how many PGM schools and your school, University of Maryland, Eastern Shore, is the only historically chartered black college program, I believe, that has a PGM program. Can you expand on that? Sure. So there is, there's 18 programs across the country. Now, there are others. There are some schools that, that have a golf management program, but they're not tied uh, or accredited by the PGA of America, which means their students don't come out with a PGA membership. They have to earn their degree, then on their own go through the PGA curriculum and try to attain membership that way, where our students are doing all of it at once in a four and a half year period. Us being the only uh, historically black school that's doing it, you know, of course, we attract, obviously, a a very, very diverse uh, group of young people uh, attending UMES and and trying to get through this because they're really the the main thing for all the students is we all have the same thing. We all love the game. We love playing it. Maybe we think we want to teach it. That's all the other stuff that goes with it that nobody ever thought of when they start getting into the classes. They're like, wow, I didn't know this or I didn't know that. And as you, John, as you know, the industry is so huge, you can just branch out into any different direction you want to go to. And students have been successful for quite a few years now. What does some of the curriculum in the program actually entail? I know everyone probably has a pipe dream of perhaps being a professional golfer, but they realize that may not be logical for everybody. I'm learning this as I go. There's a million different ways to earn a living within the industry. So does your program kind of prepare the students for that? What it really prepares them for is the the traditional ladder, if you will. Come out as an assistant, move into head pro, uh, maybe director of golf, maybe GM, whatever it might be. That's what the curriculum really sets up. Now, and it's what you would think. So the teaching and coaching is very, very heavy because the PGA promotes. That's what really sets us apart from everybody else is our ability to teach the game, not just to run the operation, but to teach. So it's very intensive in that. And then you get into other things you would think of like tournament operations, golf car fleet management, customer relations, golf operations. It just goes a turf grass. I mean, it just goes into a lot of different directions. And then there again, I'm going to hit on again. So as we're tied to hospitality here between the golf side and the food and beverage side, and then a little bit of the turf grass that you get within the curriculum, it really sets our students up to move all the way up to the GM level. But we also have students that come out and they, they can come to me and say, you know, I don't really want to do a traditional uh, assistant pro. I want to do something different. I've got a young man right now. He's graduating in May. He's done two internships at the golf channel. He's so, deep into golf media, that's all he wants to do. And he's moving on to uh, College Park, and he's starting a master's degree in journalism in the fall. And I have no doubt that he's going to end up full-time on the Golf Channel when it's over. So that, that's just one example of, of a direction you can go that doesn't have to be traditional. Well, that's amazing to hear. And it could be a misconception. It could be a gripe amongst people that are my age and older that the new millennial generation, for lack of better terms, is more lazy, lethargic, entitled, all of the above. I won't guess your age, but I'm sure that your students are 
a decade plus younger than you at least. Now it seems like the people who'd be involved in this program, the students would have to be highly motivated. They, they're hard workers, they're intuitive, all of the above and more. So can you sort of speak to that? Is that a misconception that this generation is lazy and entitled or are you seeing these people really keep their nose to the grindstone and really get it done? Both as your, your players and your students. You know, we've had this conversation. If our generation complains about it, well, we're the ones that created it because we're the ones that raised, raised them. <laughs> and so that's how I see it. But what they, what they will tell me from their point of view is it's, it's not that they're lazy, but they will tell you we are the most intelligent generation that's ever come along. And I'm not going to say that they're necessarily wrong because they certainly have a lot different life experiences at an age that I didn't have. I think things are, what I would say to me seem to be a little out of perspective sometimes that necessarily what they think is important isn't really important to their overall well-being. And, you know, you hear a lot of the uh, complaints about maybe you know, some of the stuff maybe that's in the PGA curriculum, you know, this, you know the, 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 the budgeting and the customer relations stuff. And, well, this is not what I'm here for. It's a bit, you got to understand how important it is and what a big part of the business this is, is. And if you can't write a budget and you can't read a budget or run the operation, John Brown's not going to hire you. <laughs> so, you know, that's kind of how I look at it. Uh, you know, so I'm not going to say that they're lazy, but they certainly have a different perspective on life than what we had. You know, if you can say, you know, we, we were raised, you know, put your nose in the grindstone and don't complain and, I'm 52 years old, and I think our generation, where we get stuck, is we had to conform to both generations above us and behind us. We were the ones that had to conform both ways, where you had the baby boomers ahead of us. We had to do what they said. Well, this is how it is. You know, for in golf, let's say that. You know, I was coming up, and it was not easy to break into the golf industry back in the early 90s. It was very competitive, even to get an assistance job. And... You know, back then it was just, you know, it was just a lot harder than it is now. These kids today, they have it so easy because you hear them. There's jobs everywhere within the golf industry right now. They don't have to do a whole lot. They don't necessarily have to stand out to get a job in the golf industry, especially as an assistant. So it's, it's just, it's just different now. That's all. Billy, one of the things that was a bit eye-opening for me when I put together my opening meeting for your students last fall was, you know, I wanted to give them a presentation about the landscape of golf. And as part of that, I actually looked at the top five management companies in size, my company included. I looked at all the corporate executives and there were 99 people on those sites and there were 10 that were either a minority or some other background. They were non-Caucasian males and females. And the majority, obviously, 89 of the 99 people were white Caucasian males. And we've talked about diversity a lot, both from providing opportunities, but also just providing education to a lot of the folks that are in the industry what is your take and what do you think? And are you seeing more opportunities for your students and just in the market in general? Opportunities, yes. The phone rings quite a bit. Maybe some conversations that, that maybe shouldn't be had is, hey, we are specifically looking, looking for somebody that looks like this because they are different. You know, we hear a lot how the golf industry needs to mirror America. And which, correct me if I'm wrong, I believe the African-American population in this country right now is about 13 to 14%. Well, then I, I, 
does that mean that 13 to 14 percent of the PGA of America needs to be African American? If that's kind of a baseline that you're looking at, then we are way, way, way off base. So the students will tell me, uh, that's an African-American student specifically, that the reason that they started playing golf was because of Tiger Woods and everything that he did. And they had somebody to look up to. And so yeah, we know how important he is. Too bad about his accident the other day. Holy mm-hmm. cow. Um, I don't know what that's going to do to him. It might be finished, I guess. But he's resilient. You know, he may, he may come back. Yeah, he was a very important figure in their lives. And it's, it's just a matter of getting, letting them know that there are opportunities in this industry for them. It's an industry they were, that their parents and grandparents were let's say, being shut out of for quite some time. And it's not that it's, it was certainly a terrible thing, but, you know, let's write it now and, and give these generations coming up an opportunity and just let them know that they're wanted. And it is important for them to be in the golf industry and working uh, behind the counter. And when somebody walks in a, a golf shop that they see somebody that looks like them and, you know, that, that carries a lot of weight. It really does. And that's why I'm very proud of the alumni that we have that are out there doing this. And every one of them, you know, they all want to play They all want to teach. And, but them specifically, they want to have something to do with uh, raising the number of African-Americans that are playing the game. Billy, I, I'm going to ask you a question. And I mean this with all due respect, with the utmost respect, if I was in charge of hiring someone for your position, in all honesty, the first thing that comes to mind would not be a 52-year-old Southern white male, but obviously you're very <laughs> you good. You got at what, that right. Yeah, you're obviously very good at what you do and you're highly accomplished. How are you able to relate with the generation, not only younger than you, but with largely African-American students of that descent? Well, I'll be honest with you. It's, it's not easy with the males. It's a whole lot easier with the, the, the females. Whether, whether the females are white or black, it doesn't matter. Uh, when they come in the program, they're ready to go. Their, uh, their, their eyes are open. Their arms are open. Grab me by the hand and take me where I need to go and just tell me how to get there. The, I'm not going to say the majority. I would say it's a minority of the African-American males that come in, but there are, there are certainly some trust issues. And I get it. You know, it took me – I was here for probably four or five years before I really started picking up on – yeah, maybe these these 18, 19 year old young African American men don't trust me. And why should they? You know, who am I? What makes them think that I have their best interests at heart? And I don't know if this is the best way to explain it, but I kind of have to approach some of it as kind of like a, a, a military thing where you kind of got to break down the relationship and they kind of build it back up. And when you build it back up, that's when the trust comes in and that's when hopefully they'll see that what, what we do here is, is, is for them and to help them, whether they're white or black. I mean, we treat everybody's treated the same. Everybody gets the same opportunity. All the resources are here for everybody to use. We just wanted to get through. We wanted to pass their classes, pass their PGA test, pass their PAT, finish their internships and get out of here and get on with your life and go be a productive member of society and go be a productive member of the PGA. That's that's the approach. Yeah, but sometimes with like I said, with the with the, the guys coming in, there's certainly a trust issue. Certainly by graduation, that's usually pretty much gone. Somewhere along the line, something happened where they needed to turn to us, me, or my colleague, Dr. Chris Prosser, who's also a PGA member, 
you know, whether it's, the, you know, they need financial help and we can find them a scholarship or, or helping them with their game or, you know, improving their putting or whatever, whatever it is, it, it kind of turns around the relationship. And they're like, you know what, these guys are okay. And then, you know, a lot of them are from single, uh, single parent households. And I can, you know, I'll have a mother walk in my office and sit down with her son. And I mean, here, I mean, I can imagine her looking across the desk at me, white, straight, conservative male, 52 years old. How is this guy going to help my kid? What does he care? And, and I get it. And I think that's the most important is having empathy for, for that situation and just understanding it. And once you, once you get there, you can understand where they're coming from. It's a whole lot easier to deal with. I think for at least where I sit, you know, my goal, and I think everybody's goal who's in a position to potentially hire students from PGM programs you know, our goal should be to create opportunities, right? And equal opportunities, and then, you know, expose students to educational opportunities, and then allow them a path to grow to the level that they want to grow to remove all barriers whatsoever. I think, I think in concept, the industry believes in that. I I think in principle and application, it's not quite there yet. How can we get better at that? Well, everybody has good intentions, right? But the reality is it's a numbers game and we still want to hire the best people for the position that we can. And like I said, from a PGA perspective, there's only 165 African-American members. I do believe that's the numbers around there somewhere. So the numbers are against that anyway. I think I'm pretty sure about this where I don't think there's a private club in this country that employs a, African-American head professional that's a PGA member. I think I'm right about that. Public courses, yes. Private clubs, I don't think so. So who's going to be the first club to do it? That's where you're going to see some change. It's just, you know, but you don't want it to be a one and done either. So I don't, I don't know what the answer is. That's, that's the problem is nobody has the answers to any of this. It's tough. It's a tough situation for everybody. I think you're right, Billy. I think it's numbers. I mean, 165 out of, you know, I don't know how many PGA members there are. Yeah, like 29,000 is the number that's promoted. Yeah, obviously the ratio is not, you know, the correct ratio. So I think continuing to uh, educate and provide those opportunities, I think your school grants a, a great opportunity to get some depth in obviously knowledge base in golf, but how about some depth in just life in general, right? Your students leave being exposed to in a different environment than, than many other schools can offer that offer PGM programs. And that's just the reality. So do you ever get, you know, good positive feedback after the, after the fact from your students of loving that experience from being at your school and just being exposed to different cultures and backgrounds and diversity? Yeah. Well, the key is, is the internships. That everything you're talking about right now, that's where they grow. Yeah, my ego is not big enough to say, you know, you're going to learn everything about golf that you need to do for me. They, they learn way more on their 16 months of internship than they're ever going to learn from me lecturing to them sitting in the classroom. And, and that's how it should be. That's why the internships are created. And 16 months is a lot. So they're gone every summer uh, across the country doing, you know, where, whether it's Pebble Beach or, you know, John, you know, you know, Josh is down to your course down in Whispering Pines or uh, wherever it may be, Congressional, Oakmont, I mean, whatever. Um, it's, it's the building the network and keeping those networks open that's really going to serve all of them well. Have you had students give you feedback or do you know just from experience that 
your curriculum not only prepares them for potentially working in the golf industry, but also does it set them up for success outside of the industry? And if so, what ways have you seen an example of that? Yeah, well, that's one of the questions that we get from parents when we're sitting down with them because the major, the degree, it says on their diploma, this is a PGA golf management degree. So then the question is, well, is my kid going to be pigeonholed to having to work in the golf industry and they won't have any options? No, no, that's not the way degrees work. And we all know that a degree gets you your first job out the door. And then after that, it's what have you done? It's not, where did you go? What was your GPA? It's what have you done lately? You know, that's the beauty of a degree, no matter, you know, how many of us working on a degree anyway, you know, not many, but within the curriculum, yeah, there's a lot of business that's built into it, whether it's, uh, you know, business, you know, technology, whether it's accounting, marketing, you know, law, all that kind of stuff that goes along with a business degree, you get bits and pieces of that that are built in to the PGA golf management degree, along with the golf side of it. It's, it's, it's like you can take accounting and we're going to, if we're talking about accounting in class, you just put a spin on it. We're talking about accounting at a golf club as opposed to a hotel or a restaurant or an industry or whatever. So yeah, I mean, that's the reality of it right there. Well, it's story time on the Golf Exposed podcast. We'll be right back with some more great information from Billy. I feel like I can call him Billy. We're basically best friends now. Awesome information. He's doing a lot of great work in the golf industry and beyond with promoting diversity. We invite you to share yours. You can submit your stories to me at jcolson, J-C-O-U-L-S-O-N, at golfback.com. We'd happily read them and share them on the show. And I think this one today is really cool. So a man by the name of Joseph Wirtz reached out to me and he said on a recent golf trip to Wellsboro, his godson, Eric Keck, had a hole-in-one on hole number 13. This marked his third hole-in-one in his illustrious career. The very next day, Joseph himself had his third hole-in-one at Mark Twain in Elmira on hole number six. Joe says, now the race is on for number four. Coolest thing about this is, of course, hitting a hole-in-one or multiple hole-in-ones in the case of Joe and his godson, Eric. Obviously, that's a tremendous physical accomplishment. But what's so cool about the game that we all know and love, it brings families closer together. You know, you can't really play football or basketball with your grandfather, at least not in a competitive manner. We all know that you can hit the links with grandma, granddad, great-granddad, and it's just a really cool thing. So, Joseph, I want to thank you for sharing your story. And uh, let us know who pulls out the fourth hole-in-one first. Now it's time to get back to my best buddy, Billy, with a great golf story. On the course and beyond. Welcome back to the Golf Exposed podcast. We, of course, are still being joined by Billy Dillon of the University of Maryland at Eastern Shore. John, we're getting a lot of great information today. I hope people take advantage, reach out to Billy or yourself about getting involved in this program in one way or another, especially if you have aspirations of working in the golf industry in some way, some really, really meaningful work they're doing there with the, that curriculum and that program. Absolutely. And I think Billy's got a story for us right now, just something to keep in mind about how small the world is and how you really need to keep your options open and treat people the right way and what might present itself. And uh, it's related to the golf industry. So I'm excited to hear about it. All right, guys. So, of course, you know, things come up in class all the time. and We get off topic about different things. And, and one of the stories I tell my students is, uh, you know, my first job out of college, I was hired by a PGA professional. I was going for an assistance position at a place called Jamestown Park 
golf course in Jamestown, North Carolina, which is a little town right between Greensboro and High Point. And I'm in the interview, going through the whole day with the head pro and everything seems to be fine. And, and uh, the interview's over and I leave for the day. And a couple of days later, I, I get the phone call. Hey, we want to hire you. Great. So I accepted the position and I got finally started the job back in June of 91. And I had been there a couple of weeks and I was, it was just one day where it was me and the head pro in there. And I, I had asked him, you know, why, what was it about me that, that kind of stood out? I was trying to, you know, dig for information on how I could help myself in the future. You know, what made it, why, basically, why did you pick me over whoever else? He said, well, here's the deal. And his name was Willis Denmark, and he was the 1991 PGA Merchandiser of the Year. And this guy was very creative, very good marketing. And he says to me, he says, you know, 10 guys applied for the job, interviewed five, and two of you were heads and shoulders above everybody else. I said, well, what made you, uh, what made you pick me over the other guy if we were pretty equal? He said, the other guy was from New Jersey, and I couldn't pronounce his last name. <laughs> and I was like, Wow. <laughs> okay, so that's why I got hired over the other guy. <laughs> so I tried to relate that to my students. And, you know, it's the little things that can get you a job sometimes. <laughs> it's the things you don't even know about sometimes. The things you don't even, yeah, exactly. You don't even know about yeah. that, that you would never even consider. He wasn't kidding. He was dead serious. <laughs> I venture to guess, though, even though that was something that was out of your hands that ultimately won you the position, had you not done the work, done the preparation and done everything else that is vital to success, you wouldn't even have been in that position in the first place to eke him out by your last name and, you know, you're from where you're from. Yes. Yeah, so I was uh, in a very, very couple of months after that, not very long. Willis asked me to go outside and do a scoreboard. Well, my, my handwriting wasn't very good at the time and he didn't like it. And he comes in the next day with his daughter who was in kindergarten with her little handwriting book, you know, that had the thick lines on it and the little dotted lines in the middle. And he's like, you need to go home and practice your alphabet. <laughs> so that summer or that, that winter, I, he didn't know I was doing this. I actually went to the local community college and took a calligraphy class. So we came back the next spring and I popped out the scoreboard and he was like, damn, where'd you learn all that? And I told him what I did. I said, well, you told me my handwriting was terrible. So I took it upon myself to go, uh, to go to the, the community college here in town. And I took a calligraphy class. He said, no kidding. What it cost you? I said, I don't know, $200 or whatever it was. He went, pulled, went in his pocket and handed me $200. I said, thank you for doing that. That's self-investment though. Anybody who's self-investing is always getting better, right, Billy? I mean, that's one thing that is a constant that I've seen in this industry or any others. People that care self-invest. Yeah. Well, especially today, and I'm assume it's only going to get, uh, get go faster as we go. I'm not going to say it's going to get worse, but it's going to get faster how things change. And if you're not keeping up, and the only way to keep up is to, uh, you know, continuing education. I mean, that's so important. I don't care what field you're in, you got to keep up. Well, Billy, I think that you gave us some tremendous things to think about, some tremendous information. We so greatly appreciate your time. I'm sure your students do. Thank you so much for lending us some wisdom here today. How can people learn about the program down there? Billy, obviously, it's an East Coast program. You can get to uh, that college from any of the metropolitan cities on the East Coast. So how can they learn about your program? Yeah, we seem to be two and a half hours from everything. We're two and a half from Norfolk, Washington, D.C., Baltimore, and Philadelphia, believe it or not. Yeah, so our website, www.umes.edu. 
edu front slash pgm. That's and the best way to get us. Now, now all the information is on there, uh, how to get in touch with me, phone numbers, personal emails, any information you want on the program. And uh, if, you're, if you're not sure about what's on the website, give me a call or shoot me an email. Or if you're looking to play collegiate golf for a great golf coach and mentor, right? Uh, we're getting there. <laughs> hey, man, thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you. Billy Dillon, what a wonderful guy. Awesome interview. Great program. Great things they're doing at the University of Maryland Eastern Shore. Thank you so much for listening to the Golf Exposed podcast. We come out with our betting and odds section, our PGA Tournament Edition, every Tuesday or Wednesday, late Tuesday night, early Wednesday morning, so you can get your picks in in plenty of time. And then this show, the business section and great golf stories, comes every Friday. You can subscribe and listen at Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, on our Podbean server at golfexposed.podbean.com, or check out browngolfmanagement.com or golfbacksolutions.com. I'm Jordan Michael Colson. We'll see you next week.